Part One, Chapter Six of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Betty B. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One by Edward Tyus Cook. Foreign Travel, Egypt and Greece. 1849 to 1850. When o'er the world we range, tis but our climate, not our mind, we change. Horace. In the autumn of 1849, Mr. and Mrs. Bracebridge, who were to spend some months in the East, again proposed that Miss Nightingale should travel with them, and again the offer was gladly accepted. Her sister was delighted. The expedition to Rome had not done what was hoped, but here was a second chance. The sister reported to her friends that Flo had taken tea with the Bunsons to receive the dernière mot on Egyptology, and that she was going out laden with learned books. Perhaps Florence would become absorbed in such studies and adopt a life of gracefully learned leisure. The literary temptation did, it is true, assail Florence, but she put it behind her. The party started in October, bound for Egypt, where the winter was to be spent. Thence they were to proceed to Athens, where Mr. Bracebridge had property. The return journey in the summer of 1850 was to be made through Germany, and Kaiserswerth was to be visited. Florence, we may surmise, looked forward most to the last stage in the journey. On November 18th, the travelers landed at Alexandria. On the 27th, they reached Cairo. On December 4th, they started in a dahabia for the Nile voyage. The boat was christened in honor of Florence's sister. My work, she wrote, is making the pennant, blue bunting with swallow tail, a Latin red cross upon it, and parthenope in white tape. It has taken all my tape and a vast amount of stitches, but it will be the finest pennant on the river and my petticoats will joyfully acknowledge the tribute to sisterly affection, for sisterly affection in tape in Lower Egypt, let me observe, is worth having. They went up the river as far as Ipsambul, Abu Simbel, a little below Wadi Halfi. On the return journey they spent several days at Thebes. The letters which Florence sent home show that Egypt appealed strongly to her imagination. What struck her most was the solemnity of the country. Nothing ever laughs or plays. Everything is grown up and grown old. The letters are full, too, of Egyptology, for she had made tables of dynasties, copied plans of temples, and analyzed the leading ideas in Egyptian mythology as expounded by the best writers of the time. Abu Simbel, January seventeenth, 1850 I passed through other halls, till at last I found myself in a chamber in the rock, where sat, in the silence of an eternal night, four figures against the further end. I could see nothing more, yet I did not feel afraid as I did at Karnak, though I was quite alone in these subterranean halls, for the sublime expression of that judge of the dead had looked down on me, the incarnation of the goodness of the deity, as Osiris is, and I thought how beautiful the idea which placed him in the foremost hall, and then led the worshipper 
gradually on to the more awful attributes of the deity, for here, as I could dimly see through the darkness, set the creative power of the mind, Neph, the intellect, Amun, the concealed god, Phthah, the creator of the visible world, and Ra, the sustainer. Ra, the son to whom the temple is dedicated. I turned to go out and saw at the further end the golden sand glittering in the sunshine outside the top of the door, and the long sand hill sloping down from it to the feet of the innermost Osirides, which are left quite free. All but their pedestals looked like the waves of time gradually flowing in and covering up these imperishable genii who have seen three thousand years pass over their heads and heed them not in the holiest place there where no sound ever reaches it is if you felt the sensible progress of time not by the tick of a clock as we measure time but by some spiritual pulse which marks to you its onward march not by its second nor its minute nor its hour hand but by its century hand i thought of the worshippers of three thousand years ago how they by this time have reached the goal of spiritual ambition have brought all their thoughts to serve god or the ideal of goodness how we stand there with the same goal before us only as distant as the star which a little later i saw rising exactly over that same sand hill in the centre of the top of the doorway but as sure and fixed how to them all other thoughts are now as nothing and the ideal we all pursue of happiness is one not because they have not probably sufferings like ours but because they no longer suggest any other thought but of doing god's will which is happiness i thought too three thousand years hence we might perhaps have attained and others would stand here and still those old gods would be sitting in the eternal twilight thebes february tenth eighteen hundred fifty the valley of the kings seems though within a mile of thebes as if one had arrived at the mountains of kaf beyond which are only creatures unknown to any but god so deep are the ravines so high and blue the sky so absolutely solitary and unearthly so utterly uninhabitable the place one look at that valley would give you more idea of the supernatural the gate of hades than all the descriptions sacred or profane what a moment it is the entering that valley where in those rocky caverns the vastness and the gloomy darkness of which are equally awful the kings of the earth lie each in his huge sarcophagus with the bodies of his chiefs each in their chamber about him and where about this time they are to return to find their bodies and resume their abode on earth if purified by their three thousand years of probation in a higher and better state if degraded in a lower i thought i met them at every turn in those long subterraneous galleries saw their shades rising from their shattered sarcophagi and advancing once more towards the light of day which shone like a star so distant and so faint at the end of that opening the dead were stirred up the chief ones of the earth well these pharaohs are perhaps now here again in the body their three thousand years having just elapsed to some of them that is if they have philosophized sincerely 
or together with philosophy, have loved beautiful forms. And if I were a pharaoh now, I would choose the Arab form and come back to help these poor people, and I am going tomorrow to a tomb of Ramses, B.C. 1150, to meet him and tell him so. It was no wonder that Miss Nightingale pitied the poor people, for the Egypt in which she traveled was as Mehemet Ali, the Lion of the Levant, had left it. She saw girls sold in the open slave market at from two pounds to nine pounds a head. She heard how justice was sold to the highest bidder, and everybody, she noted, seems to bastinado everybody else. Every man, she noted further, is a conscript for the army, and mothers put out their children's right eye to save them from conscription, till Mehemet Ali, who was too clever for them, had a one-eyed regiment who carried the musket on the left shoulder. Miss Nightingale was fond of escaping from the Dahabia in order to wander about the desert, poking my own nose, as she wrote home, into all the villages, and seeing for herself how these poor people lived. They call me the wild ass of the wilderness, snuffing up the wind, because I am so fond of getting away. Egyptian impressions stayed long in her memory, and they recurred to her thirty years later in connection with her Indian studies. As on her earlier visit to Rome, so now in Egypt she utilized all such opportunities as came in her way for studying the work of religious sisterhoods. At Alexandria she passed her days, she wrote, much to my satisfaction as I had traveled with two sisters of St. Vincent de Paul from Paris to Auxerre, who gave me an introduction to the sisters here, and I have spent a great deal of time with them in their beautiful schools and misericord. There are only nineteen of them, but they seem to do the work of ninety. Roman numeral two. In April 1850, Miss Nightingale went with her friends to Athens. Their house was in Eucharist Street, and Florence slept in the library, which opens onto a terrace looking upon the back of the Acropolis. She had little taste for the topographical research and nice distinctions between different masters of sculpture which absorbed the interest of many modern travelers and students. She was interested in broader speculations. The soul of a people, as expressed in their art, was the object to which she directed her observation, and around which she loved to let her imagination play. In her notebooks and letters, she discusses the spiritual conceptions embodied in the worship of the several Greek gods. She traces the symbols of Greek mythology to their sources in Greek scenery. She pictures the genius of Aeschylus, her favorite tragedian, preferred by her even to Shakespeare, or of Sophocles, developing in relation to local conditions and surroundings. Of the statues, the pensive beauty of the sepulchral bas-reliefs most arrested her attention, and in architecture she loved most the Doric, for its severity, its simplicity, its perfection of proportion, its image of the ideal republic. Only a republican could have conceived it, and it is sin for any other government to imitate it. Look at each column, man, I mean rearing its noble head, yet none has a separate base. Each man stands upon the common base of his country. Look at the simplicity of the fluting of the capital. No man thinks of his own adornment, but only of the glory of the whole. 
The fluting does not look like its ornament, but its drapery. I do love the old Doric as if it was a person. Then comes the Ionic, light and elegant and airy. It is true, like the Attic wit, but somewhat luscious to the taste. It soon palls. The fluting is too labored, too semicircular, like the people sitting in a semicircle to hear the wit of Aristophanes. It does not look as if it belonged to the column. And that ridge between the flutes, what is it doing there? It looks like the interval while the next interlocutor is thinking of a repartee. Then that rich beating round the bass, like one of Euripides's choruses, which have nothing to do with the piece. Give me the Ionic to amuse me, but the Doric to interest me. The Corinthian is like the worship of Dionysus, like the illustration of nature by art, a bad conjunction, I think, which in any other hands would become art run mad, but modified by the exquisite artistic perceptions of the Greeks is exquisitely beautiful. But it is not architecture. The Doric, the Ionic, and the Corinthian are the ethical, the poetical, and the aesthetic views of life. But look at the workmanship of these things, how mathematically exact it is, the very poetry of number. It was characteristic of the philosophical bent of her mind that she sought to refer the charm of the scenery to some general law. Athens, June 8th. I have been taking some lovely rides with Mr. Hill on Hymettus along the Daphne Road and Takara. How lovely the scenery is, would be difficult to describe, and why it is so lovely. I begin to think that it is the proportion, and that there must be proportion in the things of nature as of art. I am talking nonsense, I believe, but nobody minds me, you know. In the valleys of Switzerland, the height is too great for the width, and it looks like a bottle. In the valleys of Egypt, the width is too great for the height, and it looks like a tray. For this reason, clouds are provided in Switzerland and Scotland. The height would become intolerably out of proportion unless it were covered in at the top. For this reason, clear sky is in Egypt, or you would feel in a shelf. But here, where the clear sky is meant, they say, to be perpetual, though I cannot say I have seen much of it since I came, the proportion observed has been perfect. The exact curve is always there, the exact slope which you want, and if a line were to change its place, you feel the effect would be spoilt. You feel towards it as to an architectural building. I believe that in this lies the great peculiarity of the Athenian views. Otherwise, for coloring, I must declare I have seen nothing like the evenings of the Campania. Of the Parthenon by moonlight she wrote that it was impossible that earth or heaven could produce anything more beautiful. In other letters she dwells on the beauty of the view from Lycabetus and the glory of the sunset from Hymettus. One day upon the Acropolis she found some boys with a baby owl that had just fallen from its nest in the Parthenon. She bought it from them and kept it. It used to travel in her pocket and live at Embley. Roman numeral three. Public affairs in Greece interested her also. She had arrived in Greek waters at the height of the Pacifico crisis. There had been a rupture between England and Greece, which threatened also the relations between England and France, 
and which convulsed political parties at Westminster, over the claims of Mr. Finlay, the historian of modern Greece, and Don Pacifico, a native of Gibraltar. Lord Palmerston had ordered the Mediterranean fleet to the Piraeus to enforce the British claims, and Miss Nightingale was sitting beside Mr. Wise, the British minister at Athens, at dinner on board HMS Howe, when the submission of the Greek government was brought to him. Her home letters throw much light on the ins and outs of this affair, which, however, is now only remembered as the occasion of Lord Palmerston's vindication in the House of Commons, with its famous peroration about civis Romanus sum. Miss Nightingale now, as earlier, was a strong Palmerstonian. The friends of Broadlands, she wrote to her parents, need never have been less uneasy for his reputation, and if parliamentary success be a sufficient test, she was entirely right. She found herself again in the thick of political discussion on leaving Greek waters. Her party sailed from Athens on June 17th, and went to Trieste by Corfu, that fairy island, she wrote, where every flower grows twice as big as it does anywhere else, and where no frost can touch the olive and the pomegranate. She and her parents were acquainted with Sir Henry Ward, then Lord High Commissioner of the Ionian Islands. Sir Henry, who had been an active liberal at home, had felt himself obliged to adopt sternly repressive measures in the islands. Miss Nightingale was opposed to his policy, as also to the British occupation. He invited her and her friends to the palace. She went to proffer excuses. He came out, said that I had often called him tyrant, and took me in his arms like a father, and stood over me in the character of tyrant, he said, till I had written a letter compelling them all to come, which he then sealed and I sent. So the whole posse comitatus of us spent the day there, they sending the carriage for us, and I really glad to have seen what is my idea of eastern luxury. The tyrant placed his accuser next to him at dinner, deplored his false position, and so forth, and they made some sort of peace, though not perhaps till Miss Nightingale had sought to bring him to a conviction of sin for his executions and arbitrary arrests, for she was armed as her letters show, now as ever, with all the facts and figures marshaled in blue book precision. Roman numeral four. Her mind was interested in all these things, but her heart was elsewhere. Wherever thou art, said a famous statesman, it is with the poor that thou shouldst live. It was so with Florence Nightingale's inmost thoughts. Her greatest pleasure in Athens was found in the society of the American missionaries, Mr. and Mrs. Hill, who conducted a school and orphanage. Of Mrs. Hill she wrote, From heaven she comes, in heaven she lives. In charge of the mission school was a Greek refugee from Crete, Elizabeth Kantaksaki, and with her, too, Florence Nightingale formed a warm friendship. Elizabeth had lived an adventurous life before she found security at Athens. Her father had fallen by a Turkish bullet. Her mother had made a heroic escape from a Turkish captor, and the first years of the child's life were spent in the fastnesses of Mount Ida. Alas, wrote Miss Nightingale, how worthless my life seems to me by the side of these women. 
A mood of great dejection appears in her diary of this time, to which an attack of low fever no doubt contributed. She could not find satisfaction in the interests of foreign travel. She was tortured by unsatisfied longings which could find outlet only in a world of dreams. An entry in her diary for June 7th is in these words. Grotto of the Eumenides Will this fury go on increasing, till by degrees my mind is more and more taken off the outer world with all its claims, and I am no longer able to command my attention at all? Miss Nightingale and her friends landed at Trieste at the end of June, and thence made their way to Dresden and Berlin. The pictures which most impressed her were Raphael's Sistine Madonna and the reading Magdalene, then attributed to Correggio. A year later her mother and sister were at Dresden, and she enjoined them, above all things, to see the Magdalene, the queen of pictures. How I feel that picture now, she wrote to them, August twenty sixth, 1851. Dark wood behind, sharp stones in front, nothing to look back upon, nothing to look forward to, clinging to the present as she does to the book, which beams bright light upon me. Oh, what a history that picture contains in its little canvas, and how well it hangs near that glorious Sistine Virgin. All that woman might be, all that she will be, near what she is, for it is not a Magdalene in the common sense of the word, or rather it is in the common sense of what woman commonly is, not what we mean by a Magdalene. At Dresden, Miss Nightingale was still in much dejection. I have never felt so bad, she wrote, July 7th. The habit of living not in the present, but in a future of dreams, is gradually spreading over my whole existence. It is rapidly approaching the state of madness when dreams become realities. And now, when the goal of Kaiserswerth was near, she felt almost unmanned, almost inclined to turn back and follow another path. It seemed to me now, July 10th, as if quiet, with somebody to look for my coming back, was all I wanted. But this was only a moment of passing weakness. At Berlin, her spirits revived, for her vital interests were satisfied, and she spent some days in inspecting the hospitals and other benevolent institutions. On July 31st, she reached Kaiserswerth. I could hardly believe I was there, she wrote in her diary, with the feeling with which a pilgrim first looks on the Kidron, I saw the Rhine, dearer to me than the Nile. She stayed a fortnight with the pastor and his wife and the deaconesses, studying their institutions. Left Kaiserswerth, says the diary, August 13th, feeling so brave as if nothing could ever vex me again. She rejoined her friends at Dusseldorf. They stayed at Ghent actually for me to finish my M.S., August 17th. Finished my M.S., they read it, Mr. Bracebridge corrected it and sent it off, August 19th. Next day they returned to England. The manuscript was of the pamphlet describing the institution of Kaiserswerth on the Rhine, which was issued anonymously soon after Miss Nightingale's return. Some notice of the pamphlet will be found in a later chapter in connection with her longer sojourn at Kaiserswerth in 1851. It was printed by the inmates of the ragged school at Westminster, in which she was interested. She described in it the work of the deaconesses 
and ended with an appeal to English women to go and do likewise. The fire burnt within her, and she returned home more than ever, resolved to consecrate her life to the service of the sick and sorrowful. Roman numeral five. Foreign travel, it will thus be seen, had worked no such cure, had created no such diversion as her family desired. Their hope, even their expectation, was not unreasonable. Florence Nightingale was a woman of learning, and her foreign travels had stimulated her alike to research and to imaginative thought. At home, too, during all the years of restless and unsatisfied yearning for some other life, she had been a diligent reader and student. She had a real gift for literary expression, as her letters may already have indicated, and as her later writings were to prove more decisively. She had, moreover, the instinct for self-expression. She was a constant letter-writer and note-taker. She communed with herself not only in speechless thought, but in written memoranda. Had another impulse not been stronger within her, she might easily have become a literary woman of some distinction. But though she was fond of writing for her own satisfaction, she had a profound distrust of it as a substitute for action. Like one of George Eliot's heroines, she did not want to deck herself with knowledge, to wear it loose from the nerves and blood that fed her action. "'You ask me,' she had written to Miss Clark in 1844, "'why I do not write something.' I think what is not of the first class had better not exist at all. And besides, I had so much rather live than write. Writing is only a supplement for living. Would you have one go away and give utterance to one's feelings in a poem to appear, price two guineas, in the Belle Assemblée? I think one's feelings waste themselves in words. They ought all to be distilled into actions, and into actions which bring results." Do you think a babe would ever learn to walk if it were to talk about its living in such strange times? I must learn to use my legs, and so on. Or do you think anybody ever did anything who did not go to it with a directness of purpose, which prevented him from frittering away his impressions in words? She was of Ibsen's persuasion. What is life? A fighting in heart and in brain with trolls. Poetry, that means writing, doomsday accounts of our souls. She held in great suspicion and dislike what she called the artist-like way of looking upon life. It reduces all religions, she said, and most inward and spiritual feelings into a sort of magic lantern with which to make play for the amusement of the company. Her mother used to praise her beautiful letters was proud of the European reputation she had won among learned men, and wanted to know why she could not be happy in cultivating at home the gifts which God had given her. To Florence Nightingale these things were not gifts to be cultivated, but rather temptations to be subdued. She read with some attention in 1846 a book called Passages from the Life of a Daughter at Home a religious work containing counsels of submission for women dissatisfied with their home life. Piling up miscellaneous instruction for oneself, she wrote in one place in the margin, the most unsatisfactory of all pursuits. She strove to say to God, as she wrote in another place, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, 
not behold the handmaid of correspondence, or of music, or of metaphysics. That power of always writing a good letter whenever one likes, she said in one of her pages of self-examination, is a great temptation, a temptation, if such it be, to which it must be confessed, she continually succumbed. But she wished to win no repute from her fall. In 1854, her sister printed the beautiful letters from Egypt, and issued a few copies for private circulation. Florence was not pleased, but acquiesced, and corrected the proofs. Any dreams, then, which she may have harbored of literary distinction, she had put resolutely away from her. O oh God, she had written in her diary at Cairo, thou puttest into my heart this great desire to devote myself to the sick and sorrowful. I offer it to thee. Do with it what is for thy service. But there was still one other temptation to be subdued. End of section 9